Our current house is in the Truman Show set, otherwise known as Wigram. It's the first brand new house we've ever bought or lived in. It's fantastic. And the lawn was pristine when we got there, and most of it still is, because it's become my project. I want to break that pattern. Now, there are several very real threats to its lushness and its vigour. One is plant shade, and I can't do much about that. Another is moss, which grows in the sort of wetter, darker bits. But the big one I want to introduce you to is this stuff. See, it's got quite pretty purple leaves, and when it's about to really let rip, it has this very pretty little yellow flower. But don't be fooled. It's of the devil. Its name, Oxalis. When it pops up in the garden, I dig it out very carefully because I have discovered that if I miss the slightest little bit of it, that little bit will come roaring back three times as big, laughing at my pathetic attempts to eliminate it. These things are as persistent as triffids. But however... Once it has jumped the verge from my garden to the lawn and sprouted there, it's a much tougher foe. I frequently poison it, which has some impact. I try to pull it out carefully, but that is less effective. You see, it's quite difficult to get it all out, as I mentioned before, because I don't want it to grow back. But in the process of pulling it out, I often pull out grass with it. And you don't want that. It's a real challenge. Now, you may be wondering why this church has taken a somewhat agricultural tilt in its teaching direction. But there is a spiritual point lurking in the deep background of my lawn-tending story. I'm going to be reading to you shortly from Matthew 13, verse 24. So right now you might like to pause me and enjoy that power of controlling my voice. Grab it and read it with me. Jesus put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But whilst everyone was asleep, an enemy came and sowed wheat among the wheat, weeds among the wheat, and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? And he answered, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, No. For in gathering the weeds you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now apparently, if you and I were neighbours in the ancient Near East, and I was an especially nasty piece of work, I might sneak out to your fields one night and sow weeds in there. It was a real thing. So much so 
that it is mentioned in the Roman legal code and there is a prescribed punishment for doing so. Now, in the rural North Island farming community that I spent a lot of time in as a young fella, stealing somebody else's stock, in other words, rustling, was not considered as bad as murder, but it was not too far away. Even the suggestion that you had done such a heinous thing could be social death. Then, in the ancient times, and now, you don't mess with a farmer's livelihood. The other background observation to make about this scenario is that the specific form of weed that's referenced here, when it first sprouts, looks exactly like wheat. It's not until they both have matured that the weeds have a slightly different colour. So while you might think you're pulling up weeds, you may in fact be pulling up wheat instead. The other agricultural reality in play is by the time they've grown up together, the roots are likely to be in somewhat of a tangle. So if you pull up the um, weeds, you're going to pull up wheat as well. A bit like my scenario in the lawn. When I go for the oxalis, invariably I will get some grass with it. And you don't want to do that. So, Jesus' answer to this conundrum was, look, just leave the good and the bad until harvest, when everything has to come up and we'll sort it out at that point. Now, if you'd asked me, Rod, what do you think is the field that's referred to in this parable? Then I think I would have said the church. But then I read one more commentary and I've changed my mind. I thought that I'd share it with you today. I'm going to be reading from verse 36, so you might like to pause me again. Then Jesus left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples followed him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, Well, the one who sows a good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers. And they will throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Let anyone who has ears hear. So Jesus says, the field is both the world and the kingdom, which is interesting. So he's not just talking about why there are agents of confusion, chaos and destruction in the church, but also in his wider kingdom and also then in the wider world. And then there's the obvious question. 
Why doesn't he do something about it? Well, they are there because Satan put them there. For Jesus and the vast majority of his church then and since believe that evil is real and has personality. The Satan is the accuser. Now, some people knowingly, but most unknowingly, serve a God, that's God with a little g, that sees them as tools to use rather than as his beloved children. One of my heroes, C.S. Lewis, said the best strategy that the devil ever came up with was to depict himself as a figure of fun with uh, pitchfork and red tights and all that kind of stuff. Because you wouldn't be concerned with a parody. So today, Satan is very much a figure of fun. But he's real. In this parable, none of us will be judged before the harvest, before all things are brought to light, before final judgment. This can be. This is a source of huge frustration. And it seems that his answer to my question was that judging early would damage the good that is happening alongside the evil. He doesn't go into detail about this, but we can to an extent speculate as long as we're not too adamant about it. What harm might the Lord do if he judged early? So the first, first possible answer to that. It would take away the opportunity for repentance. One of the key values of God's kingdom is that nobody is beyond the hope of redemption. There is a welcome for the sinner who feels genuine sorrow about what they've done. And it does happen. Some centuries ago, a man named John Newton was a slave trader taking African slaves from um, West Africa across to the Bahamas and the US. And he did that for many years. He became Christian and he continued to be a slave trader. Some years later, he came to the conclusion that slavery was a great evil and he spent the remainder of his life campaigning against it. We remember him because he wrote Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me. He truly saw himself as the wretch. Well, in our time, a man called Charles Colson was a Watergate criminal in the 1970s. He was an aide to Richard Nixon, who famously repented. He went on to write a number of books about it and made a real contribution to wider church life. You see, in our world, weeds are not beyond hope. They can, in fact, become wheat. Okay, so that's the first one, opportunity for repentance. Number two, there's the law of unintended consequences. Now, if one bad actor was judged and plucked from a situation, might the alternative path from that point on be worse? If the Lord in his justice struck down Vladimir Putin today, it's not inevitable that the result would be better. We just don't know. It could be a lot worse. And despite being sorely tempted to, I have not prayed that he would eat a bullet. I've prayed that that situation would resolve. Now, got a baby picture for you. Do you recognise this slightly 
angelic-looking, chubby baby. Any idea who it might be? It's Adolf Hitler. He's about a year old. If one of the earlier attempts on his life had been successful, are we sure that things would have turned out better? If the Lord had guided the bullet? I'm not. Plucking out weeds before harvest might destroy a lot of wheat as collateral damage. Just as I pluck out oxalis, I destroy good grass. So that's the second one, unintended consequence. Another problem is that of motes and beams, which Jesus taught about in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. If you're unfamiliar with that story, pause me and go have a read and come back. See, the thing is, I may be blind to my own sin while having an acute sensitivity and insight into yours. It interests me that Graham Capel, who was once the leader of the New Zealand Christian Heritage Party, had an awful lot to say about sexuality and public nudity. And later on, he was convicted of sexually molesting young girls. I often think when someone has this lot to say about a particular sin, is it an issue for them, as it appeared to be for Capel? Be very careful about making judgments on others because those judgments might be turned around on you. In truth, I think, we are all hybrid crosses of wheat and weeds. And we need to keep our own sinfulness front and centre, particularly when we're looking to point the hairy finger at somebody else. Now, a variation of motes and beams is that our view on what is the worst thing in the world might be off because of our own sin. Now, the church and indeed our wider society has had its blind spots in the past on racism, colonialism, and sexism. And the impact of these things has still been worked through and will take, I'm sure, a very long time. Now, for example, back in the day, there was a lot of criticism around of Māori families because their children were often seen to play truant, disrespect authority, or dabble in petty crime. The parents were looked down upon if they drank too much or assaulted their children. It was, and, and still is, a problem. However, judging them and extract, extracting the children from their families of origin often exposed them to even more extreme abuse in foster homes and borstals. The testimony to the recent Royal Commission has been harrowing, not just for religious institutions, but much more for state uh, borstals and, and children's homes and foster, foster parents and the like. We have been, as a society, very naive in accepting predatory adults who say they care for kids while not believing the children who tried to report them. And many of these kids graduated to prison, gangs, substance abuse, mental health problems, and they repeated the cycle of abuse in their own families. Our attempts to pull out the weeds has created a much worse situation 
because our perspective was blighted by our own racism and the neglect, our own neglect. So that's three things. This parable, I think, points us towards having a more tolerant approach of people who disagree with us. And now our wider society has embraced tolerance to the extent that it generally denies the possibility of objective truth. But we don't have to go that far. I think that's kind of silly. The church in particular, though, has an unfortunate history here. Expelling or oppressing Christian people with unorthodox views has a long and bitter history. At best, it makes us seem insecure because we can't tolerate people who think differently from us. And at worst, it makes us seem like self-righteous bullies. For example, in the 1960s in New Zealand, drumming Lloyd Gearing out of the Presbyterian Church for heresy, in effect, made him into a martyr. Did his cause far more good than ours. The old Baptists, who I look to quite a bit, had this value of freedom of conscience that they held dearly, and I think it's important. I think church in general, and our church in particular, should have room for people that are seven-day creationists, out-and-out evolutionists, people who are combinations thereof, and people that don't care. We should be able to make space for folk who see the bread and wine in communion as something sacred and more than just elements. For folk who have a liberal approach to abortion and those who see pastors as set-apart priests. I tried to model this here a few years ago when I spoke on the rapture and I knew that a number of you had strong positive feelings about it even though I didn't believe it. So you may remember I got Jeff Williams and I gave him my notes ahead of time and I said, have a read of them and let's have a discussion at the end. You can say what you like, you can ask me what you like. And what I was trying to do was model respective, respectful disagreement. And I have noticed that since that day the world did not stop turning, that it was okay. This raises the question, parallel, of what and when we should judge an isolated person. For me, there's only a couple of things in play here. One is if we're teaching that salvation, and we're teaching, it's important, salvation is faith plus something else. Like the Galatians who said it's faith plus, uh, in the Galatian church, faith plus circumcision and observing the Jewish festivals. A few generations ago, it was faith plus abstaining from alcohol. Christianity at its core, is not Jesus plus. It's Jesus. It's one, one scenario. Second thing would be when someone was clearly preying on God's flock, exploiting our guilelessness towards someone with a good story. I think this would include con men, sexual predators, etc. An example of this is I have been warned several times about a leading New Zealand teacher, that he's a great teacher. Gosh, he's good. But don't introduce him to your wife, because he'll hit on her. I find this extraordinary. His books are everywhere, and he's well known for this. And the last is based on Corinthians, in which a church member's incestuous lifestyle 
was giving the gospel a bad name in the wider community. Now, I recall back in the 90s when I was a young man, there was a very popular and very funny Christian speaker and author called Mike Warnke. He had an extraordinary conversion story that he'd written and published in his book. He'd been a, apparently a satanic high priest and had overseen blood sacrifices and had done all sorts of things. Well, Christianity Today had a very brief look at that story. It turned out to be entirely fictional. It made the church and our gospel a laughing stock. That needs to be called out, that kind of thing. Now, these are extreme examples. But I think for the most part, the parable of the weeds is our guide. We should try to be tolerant, inclusive, gracious. We should leave the judging up to God who sees all and knows all. And whose perspective, unlike ours, is not coloured by sin. Ultimately, he will judge all of us without fear or favour. And we can trust in his justice and his mercy. In the meantime, I think, let's live and let live. It's a pretty good way to go most of the time. Thank you. I'm going to finish our sermon, our service today with a benediction. May the road rise to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face and rains fall soft upon your fields. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. Have a good week.